0: Check, check, one, two, three, four, check, one, two, three, four, there we go, there we go, wow, what a difference. Well, good morning everybody, Um, this is a little bit unusual this morning as we have uh, a great uh, snowstorm. That has hit Texas and we have snow. It's actually kind of exciting to see the snow and I know my kids are excited about it, And um, which limits the amount of people who have come to church today. A lot of them are staying at home because of the, the roads. The roads are not good and it's just safe for them to stay at home, but we are going to continue um, with our service as planned and we hope all of you are tuned in this morning, even our members here at 116 are tuned in. We're going to continue our um, track through Romans. So turn your Bibles this morning, if you would please, to Romans chapter 10. And we're going to be starting in verse 5 this morning and ended up in verse 13. 10 verse 5 to 13, which reads... For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in thy heart, who shall ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall descend into the deep? That is to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is, the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation." For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on the name, believeth on him, shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you this morning, uh, we thank you for this day, uh, Lord, we thank you for the snow, Lord, we're just, we're so um, enraptured and in awe, Lord, of you, and we, we, we are just so thankful, Lord, that, that you have saved us and you have sanctified us and you have set us apart, Lord God, to worship your holy name. Lord, we thank you for the scriptures, Lord, that make us wise in the salvation. Lord, we thank you for the word of God that we can, we can in our country still have the freedom to enjoy the word of God, to read the word of God, to proclaim the word of God, to gather under the very fire of the word of God. Lord, be glorified today. Be glorified in the proclamation of your word. Lord, be magnified today. Lord, it is, Lord, you have anointed us. Lord, to come before you today and to worship you, Lord. Help me, Lord. Help me, Lord, to be able to preach your word today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen, and so be it. Amen, amen. My key focus today will be on verse 12, which reads, There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord overall is rich to all who call upon him. I'd like to discuss two points from our text this morning and address what Paul is saying concerning the righteousness of God, which we see one that condemns, which he says the righteousness of the law. And then we see another righteousness, one that liberates, in which the Bible calls the righteousness of faith. We have to remember, we have to come to the conclusion, the sobering reality, that we are either in one place or the other. There is no middle ground. We are either saved or we are lost. We are either saved or we are lost. The Bible says, regardless of your nationality, your religion, your creed, your social standing, or the color of your skin, there is only one way to come to God and only one way to be right with God. The Bible says in John 14, 6, Christ himself says, He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. 1 Timothy 2, 5 says, For there is one God, and one mediator between God and men, all men. And that man is Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 9, he says, What then? Are we better than them? No, in no wise, we have before proved both, hear me now, Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin Paul begs the question he lays it out he says are we better as if there is some people group or some way that another person is lifted up above another based upon his heritage based upon his nationality based upon whatever it may be God is saying no That there is nothing within a person, there's nothing about a person that elevates him above his common man. Paul said in in Romans 3.10, he says, as it is written, just so we're all clear, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that even understands. There is none that even seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, Paul makes it clear emphatically, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped. That all the world, all the world, by the way, that's every single person on the planet become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law, the reason of the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon them what that believe. For there is no difference. There's no difference. For all have sinned, the Bible said, and come short of the glory of God. You see, to be under sin means that we are truly guilty of violating God's holy law. We will be condemned when we stand before him for judgment unless our sins are atoned for through Christ's blood. Showing, therefore, that we are all under sin. There is no difference. There is no distinction. Jew or Greek, white, black, brown, or green, when Paul says that all are under sin, he means that everyone is under the guilt of sin. This is really Paul's argument as he even reflects of the reality that when he says in verse 4, which we went over last Sunday, for Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone that believes. This is what he's dealing with here. And And this, I believe, is what Paul is wanting to make clear, that we are not deceived into thinking that we can somehow please God without the saving righteousness of Jesus Christ. Two points today looking at the two different areas of the law, the two righteousness in which the scriptures talk about in verse I'm sorry in chapter 10 verse 6. Let's deal with the first area here where Paul says for Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things he says, shall live by them. Here we can see that Paul was making a connection with Leviticus uh, chapter 18, verse 5, where Moses cried out to Israel, he said, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them, saith the Lord. James chapter 2 verse 10 reflects this as well when he says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law, and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. So we have to ask ourselves, what is God saying in his word? What is he dealing with here? Because there seems to be two different areas that the scriptures are dealing with there seems to be uh, two two righteousness. Not the fact that God had God is schizophrenic and He has two natures. The reality here is that the nature of the law reflects the character of God, and it always stands and it will never change. But there's an imputed righteousness that is given to us by Jesus Christ. That's imputed to us that makes us right, not based upon our own righteousness, because our righteousness, as the Bible says, is like like filthy rags how do we know this because it's our righteousness pinned against the holy righteous character of god and his commandments that show us that we are absolutely undone incapable of ever pleasing god that we are a sinner by nature and a sinner by practice we are in trouble Unless the Lord God grants us repentance and grants us a new righteousness, a forensic righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ alone. Do and live, the Bible says. And this is what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 10, 6. That we are to live by them, the righteousness which is of the law. You see, this isn't just something that Paul is just pulling out of his hat last minute. To somehow try to explain from the top down of the righteousness of God. This goes all the way back from the very inception of sin. When God created man in his image and that man rebelled against God. God himself told Adam. He told him, do this and you Will live. I like what R.C. Sproul says. He says the covenant of works, which this is called, refers to the covenant that God had originally made with Adam and Eve in their pristine purity before the fall, in which God promised them blessedness contingent upon their obedience to his command. In Genesis chapter 2, 15 through 17, the Bible says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And if they don't eat of it, then you shall what? Surely live. And we know that Did not happen. As a matter of fact, after the fall, sin came into the world. Sin came upon every human being. Every human being that came into the world came into the world with a fallen nature, born under the law, guilty of violation of the law of God by our very nature. We're born, as the Bible says, with a lying tongue. We come out of the womb lying, the scriptures say. That we are conceived in iniquity. We are monsters of iniquity in all reality. But after the fall, the fact that God continued to promise redemption to creatures who had violated the covenant of works, that ongoing promise of redemption is defined as what the Bible would call, or we would call, the covenant of grace. Furthermore, the covenant of grace does not abolish works. The purpose of grace is to provide a Savior who does, hear me close now, the works Adam never did so that the Lord can reckon us as covenant keepers via the imputation of Christ's righteousness. And this is what Paul is <clears throat> is dealing with when he's making this proclamation that we would understand this from the foundation as Brother Ivan so eloquently put, this, put together this morning, Psalm 11, 3, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? We always have to go back to our presuppositions. We have to go back to our premise of what this actually means because the problem is here is that somewhere along the line, someone got deceived. Someone took the law, which was never intended for salvation. It was never intended for to be a performance-driven religion. It was always given that men would see themselves in truth, that they would flee to the Savior, to the Messiah, where they would be justified by Faith, And this is Paul is dealing with the foundations here. We've got to go all the way back to the beginning to understand what Moses describes as the righteousness, which is of the law, that he says, for the man which doeth those things shall live by them. Can a man ultimately, do we have to ask the question to ourselves this morning, is there anything that we can do to be right with God? I think it was Martin Luther said that he has to preach justification every Sunday because every week people forget what was preached and he has to go back over again because I think because of the fall, because of our default system, because of our nature, we tend to default back to a works, righteousness. And we see that Israel up until this point was intoxicated With this perverted view of the law. Where they thought somehow that the law would would give them preeminence over the people because they were given the law. They were shown the law. But the sad thing is that they were dead in their sin, they were hard of hearing, and they didn't understand, and they were they were envious of our Savior, they were envious of Christ, they were hateful, they were greedy. And the scriptures say they did not understand the law, they did not see their Messiah. So they twisted and they turned the law into their own vile purposes. Moses proclaimed the Ten Commandments and they were a direct communication from God to Israel. But we know if we read Exodus and Deuteronomy, we can see that the Ten Commandments given to the people Struck them down. It says, But it was too much for their sinful, terrified souls to stand. And so Moses is entreated to stand between God and them and be the medium of communication between them. And the Lord approved of the arrangement and installed Moses into the office. What exactly is the scripture saying? Well, I know in Deuteronomy 5, we see what Deuteronomy means, second, time, second law, is second time of giving the law. Um, Moses gives the commandments in chapter 5, verses 7 through 21. He lays it out. If I could take these verses and kind of boil them down, they would sound like this. He gave the commandment. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. Basically, the word of God says, I am the Lord thy God, and you shall have no other gods before me. That's commandment one. Number two, you shall not make for yourselves any idols. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Number four, you should keep the Sabbath day holy. Number five, you honor your father and your mother Number six, you shall not murder. Seven, you shall not commit adultery. Eight, you shall not steal. Nine, you shall not lie or bear false witness. And number ten, you shall not covet. You see, when the law of God is preached, the word of God is preached, the law of God in which the Bible says that this moral law is written to the very fabric of humanity that we're made in the very image of God that these words should strike us in such a way because if we look at the law of God it should bring the knowledge of sin and it should show us very clearly just how depraved depraved we actually are and how bad we need Christ In Deuteronomy 5, 20 through 29, the words read, uh, Moses cried out, he says, These words that the Lord spoke to all your assembly in the mountain from the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And in 23, it says, so it was when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning and raging with fire that you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, surely the Lord, our God has shown us his glory and his greatness. And we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen this day. That God speaks with man, yet he still lives. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire, it will consume us. If we hear the voice of our Lord, our God, any more, then we shall die. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? You see... The first time the, the, the law was preached by Moses, Mount Sinai, and Exodus, we see that there wasn't this, this true reality of what sin really was. And then in the second giving of the law, we see here in verse 27, he says here in Deuteronomy 5:27, if you're following along. They said, they said to Moses after God spoke out of the fire, after they had, they, they had feared his greatness, they had feared his voice, they had feared his glory. They thought they were going to be devoured in the very fire of God. So much so, this was God's intention by giving them the law that they should fear. They should tremble. It should strike them to the very, very core of who they are. This point would bring them and grind them to powder that they would cry out for a mediator. And Moses, who is a mediator of Christ. Think of this for just a moment. Here's a type. Here's a picture. Here's a shadow of Christ himself. That the law of God has done its job. It has ground them to powder. It has stripped them of everything that they've held so dear. All their confidences have been abolished and destroyed to such, to such an extent. They said, no, Moses, you go. You be our mediator. You speak to God. You go near and hear all that the Lord our God may say and tell us all that the Lord our God says to you and we will hear it and we will do it. And then it says in verse 28, this is an interesting verse here. Then the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments that it might be well with them and with their children forever. You see, once they cried out for a mediator, God says, now I'm pleased. First giving of the law, he wasn't. oh, we can do this. We've heard your law. We can keep this law. We can do this. Yes, yes, we're Israel. But in reality, it didn't work out quite that way this time. They saw themselves in truth, and they cried out for a mediator. Once they cried out for a mediator, it says that God was pleased. And that reality is the same with you and I this morning. We sit there in front of God and pound our chest and declare to God that somehow by our works we can be made right with God is a false and wrong way to look at the law of God. But when the law of God strikes us, at our very core and strips us. As Paul had said in Romans 7, 13, he says, Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not, but sin, that it might appear sin. It appeared sin was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become partially sinful, kind of sinful, a little bit sinful, exceedingly sinful. See, Israel when they saw that mountain burst under the flames of God, their sin became so exceedingly sinful that they cried out for a mediator. And the law of God must do the same to our hearts as well. It must show us the reality of who we truly are and cause us to cry out to see our sin as being exceedingly, painfully sinful. It will see the enormity of our sin. The enormity of our violations against the holy God. Our offenses against God. Our willful offenses against God. Not minimizing our sin. It's are just little mistakes, not a big deal. When in reality you've sinned against a great God and they are a big deal. So we need to start seeing our sin as a big deal. Because today in our culture, especially in American evangelicalism and much of the American church, doesn't want to deal with sin. Or they want to twist the scriptures. Or they want to make sin to be some light thing and it's not that bad. God really doesn't care anymore. But yes, He does. The law of God still stands. God still says to you this morning, do and live. Deuteronomy 5.33, the scriptures say, You shall do, walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. Which brings us to the reality of why the law, why, why, you know, we know that the law of the scriptures tells us the law was added because of why? this, Because of sin, because of transgressions. you got to understand something. we got to understand something. When we read the word of God, we must understand that the law of God, even at the Mount Sinai, when Moses was given the law, we must understand the law was given still for the same purpose that it was given today. The law wasn't given so that they could keep it and be saved. See, the law was to push them through the Abrahamic covenant. The covenant of promise. To look to the Abrahamic covenant, which is a covenant of what? Faith. In who? The Messiah. For it says that the gospel was preached to Abraham, right? In Galatians. And Abraham believed. See, the gospel is what we're talking about here. We have to understand this reality that the law of God preached to Israel wasn't so that they would just do good things and be good people. The law showed them that they weren't good people and they weren't doing good things and nothing could rescue them. But the law was a schoolmaster to bring them to Christ where they could be justified by faith. Amen. It's always been that way. But the depraved heart twisted in such a way and they turn it into a false religion because they are not only self-deceived but because they want to also deceive others. What is the Abrahamic covenant? Well, it's, it's termed under another name as well called the covenant of faith. And we see this in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, where it says, Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited to him as righteousness. And then we see the same thing reflected as Paul said in Romans 4, chapter 3, where he says, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Here we see the imputed righteousness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I like what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 verse 17 if you're following along in the Bible. He says, "In this I say that the law, listen now, which was 430 years later cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect." For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise, but God freely granted it to Abraham through a promise. Let that sink in for just a moment because the law came 430 years after the promise was given to Abraham. We have to understand this whole reality that this whole thing is really always dealt with the law of faith. It's always been a covenant of faith. But the reality is is that something has to drive us to the covenant of faith. Something has to awaken us to the need of the promise. To point us to the promise. There has to be a schoolmaster, the law of God, when it's seen as it should be seen, when the law of God tells you to do and live and you say, I can't do and live. But then we look to another who has done and lived in our place. It is accredited to our account Mm -hmm. to the imputed righteousness of our Savior. Does that make sense? Why then the law then? It was added on account of transgressions unto the seed to whom the promise has been made should have come having been ordained through angels in the hand of a mediator. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster, what? To bring us, right? To bring us unto who? Christ, the object of our faith, that we might be what? Justified by faith. This is just the beauty of God and his ways. It's just mind-blowing when you look and you read through the scriptures through the proper lens in which we should be reading these verses through and we get an understanding that right from the very inception, uh, from the very creation, from the very book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, God has been gathering a people unto himself. But as we know, there's always those who still just don't get it. They just don't understand. Look at it in Jesus' time. It says in, um, it says Jesus when he had uh, made contact with a, with a rich young ruler, it says it's about Christ. He says, now as he was going out on the road one came running, knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Really? Then Jesus looking at him and it says that Christ loved him. See, truth tellers, the most loving thing you can do to someone who's in error is to tell them the truth. Love without truth is a lie. Always remember that. People tell you you need to be more loving. Well, what you're saying is you want me to lie. Because truth, being truthful and being honest with somebody is the greatest act of love that you can commit against another human being. Be honest, even at the cost of your own life. And Jesus loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. First of all, Jesus nailed him right into his covetous heart and his lying heart that instead of just him completing all these things that, according to the true law of God, not his perverted view of the law of God, but according to truth, he was not fit and ready for heaven. And Jesus nails him right at the end and says, Take up the cross. Do you know what that meant? You know what that meant? To a Jew in the, the time of Roman occupation and the cross as a form of execution and punishment. What was Jesus telling him? Was well, must not have been very loving of Jesus to tell him to take up his cross and die. To give him that illustration of torment and bloodshed and being executed upon a cross. And this is the very message that Christ gave him. This is where you'll find treasures in heaven. Not when you're just going around living for yourself, pretending to keep the law, pretending to be a good person. But when you die, you take up the cross and you follow me. And the verse says in in verse 22, but he was sad at this word and he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He had great possessions. Then it says when Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for those who have riches to enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust. There's the word right there. Those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter in to the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? If that's the standard, then we're all doomed. It wasn't just about the rich young ruler. it's about all his disciples standing around listening to him as well that may have had a false perception of why they were following the Lord. But Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Romans chapter ten verse twelve says, "For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek; for the same Lord, over all, is rich to all who call upon Him. Whether you're the rich young ruler, or whether you're a poor down and out pagan, the gospel's for you." Jeremiah eleven three talked about those who made a habit of trusting themselves, he says, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Cursed is every man who does not obey the words of the covenant. And then in 17.5, he says, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. But in Galatians 3.13, we can all relax just a bit. Because Paul says Christ is, has redeemed us from the curse of the law. The curse that many have in trusting the arm of the flesh, trusting in your own works, trusting in your riches, trusting in your reputation, trusting in your titles, trusting in your bank account, trusting in your identity, When the scriptures tell us very clear that we are cursed if that is what we put our trust and hope in, if it's not in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the spirit through faith. There it is. In Galatians 3:13 and 14 it says that Jesus did not just remove our curses from us, but actually became a curse for us. This has profound meaning. Jesus not only took the negative consequences of sinful choices, but he actually struck a death blow to our cursed nature. Itself, he became cursed, so that we would not have to experience the cursed nature. Indeed, we are the, righteous, the righteousness of Christ, and the, and that is certainly not cursed. To help us understand this further, consider these words that God spoke to Abraham in Genesis twelve, verse one. Now the Lord had said to Abraham, "Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house." You can see right here, God is calling Abraham out. He's calling him out from his country, his nationality, right? That so many of us depend upon, right? From your family, oh no, family identity and from your father's house. To a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you. And then he says, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Paul says in, in Romans 10, verse 8, as we're moving along, he says, but what does it say? He says that the word of God is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be Saved. This is a beautiful reality. This is a beautiful message. And it's beautiful timing. God's timing is always right on time. Hearing this message and understanding this should bring great liberty to the, to the soul. Even the downcast Christian should understand this reality that, listen, God has completed the work in his son. For God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself without your help. That God himself brought you into this world. Isn't it interesting when you think about that? Is that you really had no choice of when you were going to come into this world. Did you make the decision when you were going to be born from your mother's womb? Did you make the decision when when you were going to be conceived? All these things were out of our control. You are here today based on the entire sovereign work of God, the providence of God. And this is important to remember because God has brought you into this world for His glory and to use you for His glory. And God is, when He he converts us and He gives us a new heart, we confess and believe upon the name of God. Of the Lord, Philippians chapter two nine through eleven says: Therefore, God also has highly exalted him. That's Jesus Christ, and given him a name which is above every name. That at the same, at, sorry, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made what? Unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. And for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, brothers and sisters, shall be saved. And once again, this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, verse 26, where the Bible says, Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Closing now as we finish with the second part is the righteousness of faith. It says, For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, the man which does these things shall live by them. And then in verse 6 he says, But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. See, Romans 10, 5 through 13, and these verses that we've covered this morning, explores how Israel's people have, for the most part, rejected God <clears throat> by refusing to trust in Christ. Instead of waiting for some new truth to fall from heaven or to float up from the abyss, they ought to recognize that truth has already been given. All who confess Christ as Lord and believe in his resurrection will be saved. This is true both for the Jew and the Gentile. We need not to look any further, not to heaven as if some kind of miracle will be shown to us, right? To give you evidence of your faith. Nor are we to look for Christ to come up from the abyss and prove something to us that we might believe. But the scriptures are our proof. They show us the way. One that leads to death and the other that leads to life. In Romans 10 and 5 speak of those two righteousness. One that enslaves and one that liberates. Galatians 3:24 tells us that there is a law that we cannot keep. Now let me just say this and clarify this that when we are born again we are given the Holy Spirit of God it doesn't mean we become anti-nomianism, antinomous which is anti-law that we say well, we can't keep the law we're talking about keeping the law in the sense of salvation. We're enabled by the Holy Spirit to obey God. He gives us the spiritual muscle to obey his law. Do not lie. Do not steal. These things are given to us by the Holy Spirit himself that gives us the ability. We're once, once we were enslaved to our sin. Sin was our master. Christ was our enemy. And then Jesus Christ dies for us. And the Bible says in Romans 6 that we have been planted in his death. And we have been risen. We've risen to the newness of life. The, the sin we once love, we now hate. And the God we once hated, we now love. It does not mean that we'll no longer sin, but it's the motive of the heart. That before, I loved my sin and hated God. But now I literally hate my sin. Even though, yes, I commit sin, but I hate it. My relationship to my sin has completely changed. I like what Matthew Henry said. But no faith is justifying which is not powerful in sanctifying the heart and regulating all its affections by the love of Christ. In Romans 5 verse 6 it says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. In Romans chapter 6, verse 17 it says, But God be thanked that you were, were, by the way, the servants or slaves of sin. But ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. In Romans 3, 16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first, there is no difference, and also for the Greek, for in it, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God is revealed, not by works, but from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. I encourage you this morning, those of you that are here this morning, those of you who are listening by way of Facebook Live, that you would take a sobering, look at the majesty of God's law and you would see your sin the same way God sees your sin. You would see yourself at one time a very violent criminal towards God deserving His wrath, deserving hell, deserving deserving an eternity under the wrath of God. But God in His mercy divinely elected you and saved you and transformed you and has made you into a new creation. No longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. And knowing this full well, you hear a lot of messages this day and age being proclaimed from the news and all these different Entitlements, I'm entitled to this because of this, or I'm entitled to this because of the color of my skin, or I'm entitled to this or that or this or that. All of those are lie, lies because we're not entitled to anything. We're entitled to the wrath of God, but you're certainly not entitled to anything else. You're not even entitled to think the way you want to think. In one sense, we're made in the image of God. We have the freedom, don't get me wrong, to think how we want to think. No one can take that away from us. My point is, is that God owns you. He owns everything, even your thought life. We are to be good stewards with our lives and good stewards with even the way that we think because everything we do, we want to please our Lord. Let us remember nobody, based upon anything that they have done, based upon how they look, or any of these things, can qualify them for heaven. Only, the blood of Jesus Christ, only the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come. No man can come to the Father unless they come through Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your word. Uh, We thank you for the Holy Spirit that blesses his word for his glory. Lord, I pray, Father, those who have heard this message this morning and heard the word of God preached this morning, Lord, would take it very seriously and not be as Israel where they heard the law and they just yawned and thought, oh, yeah, we can do that. We can keep that. No big deal. Or the rich young ruler said, oh, I've kept all those things from my youth. When they didn't keep those things because they never saw the enormity of their sin. But Lord, that we would see ourselves in truth and we would run towards Christ and we would cling to Christ. In this hour and in our eternal hour. And this I pray in the blessed name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And so be it.